Before we start, I want to thank all of the Weird Libertarians patrons for being a part of the show. You can find out all of the benefits of subscribing on Patreon at joinwallplus.com. That's W-A-L-plus.com. You'll get bonus content, access to the complete archives. There's over a thousand shows that you can't get in the public feed, and you'll be supporting all of our great shows. Thank you especially to our $100 a month members, John Pusillo, Vincent Peichel, Lars Nordskog, Jake Dell, Matthew Durbin, Reinhold, Christy Avery, and Jason Doolittle. We also want to thank our main sponsor for this episode. Uh, it is Iconic Insurance. 15% of Americans are left to find health insurance on their own. And even if you get health insurance from your employer that doesn't work for you, Matt Allen and Iconic Insurance can help you find the right insurance. Just head over right now and contact him at iconic-insurance.com slash libertarians. We'll put the link in the description if you can't remember that. But Matt is a longtime listener of this program and a great guy and a good friend of mine. So please go support him and reach out right now. Thank you. And now let's get started with our show. You're listening to the We Are Libertarians podcast network. Find all of our shows at wearelibertarians.com. Welcome to the Chris Spangle Show. Thank you so much for joining me today. Uh, I'm incredibly excited about the conversation that we're going to have today, even though I know it's a tough one. It is with Benjamin Sledge, who is the author of a brand new book, uh, Where Cowards Go to Die. And Sledge is a wounded combat veteran with tours in Iraq, Afghanistan, and uh, served most of his time under the Special Operations was a Civil Affairs and Psychological Operations Command. Um, he is the recipient of the Bronze Star, the Purple Heart, and two Army Commendation Medals for his actions overseas. Now, he's written a book, which is largely about his return home, it, uh, not only his experiences, which are incredibly honest overseas, uh, but also his mental health journey and his addiction recovery and, um, you know, his various he talks a lot about journalism and faith and um i think you're really going to enjoy our conversation with ben sledge thank you so much for being here with me today uh it's an honor to be here this is uh this is my tribe this is my people the libertarians <laughs> yes I, we were talking off air i said it's a largely mostly libertarian and she's like oh i became a libertarian somewhat and you know overseas. i'm like yeah, I mean, as a Ron Paul fan, you know, the letters that we would get coming back from overseas, it was it was intense. So I, I don't want to talk about politics with you necessarily, right, right. Um, because I, I, I don't in, even like him. <laughs> no, I hate I hate it, too, to be honest with you. I, I think your story is amazing. I, in full disclosure to both you and the audience, have not read the book, but I am going to buy the book because just in prepping for this interview and reading the excerpt that I will post in the comments... Uh, it's so well written. Uh, I mean, do you have experience as a writer or, you know, how did you become such a good writer first and foremost? And then secondly, tell us what your book is about. So I, I really studied the craft. Um, some people just kind of have a natural knack for it. And I found out this is, this was funny and it'll out me. I discovered that I could write a little bit when I was writing on a 30 seconds to Mars fan forum, like back when they first started <laughs> and people were like listening to my stories and they're like, Hey, you're a good writer. And I was like, well, I'm just, I'm just telling stories about my life here. And then I kept a journal while I was overseas and then came home and started writing for a nonprofit that I was working for. And my articles started picking up there. And then eventually I switched over to the platform medium and uh, garnered some 40,000 followers there just based on my writing and work. And, and I never really talked about war. It was one of those things like most veterans don't do um, because I, I, 
I had experienced what I felt like was judgment when I came home. And so I just kind of shut down. And then uh, an editor there that I was working with really just encouraged me to tell my story because it, we were the, I mean, we're the smallest demographic in the entire United States, less than 1% of us fought in the longest running wars of the history of the United States. And so um, I started getting courted by book agents and they were like, Hey, do you, do you want to write a book? I was like, I guess. <laughs> so uh, that's, that's kind of how it, it all came about. And, and I just, for me, I studied the craft for a really long time. Stephen King, was a, a big influence, but a lot of fantasy authors, Pierce Brown from the Red Rising trilogy taught me plot and pacing, um, you know, Richard Matheson who wrote I Am Legend. And so I would just, I would pick apart their books and be like, how did they do this? And then kind of move from there and, and develop my own craft in the process. Well, it, like I said, the excerpt was, was very well written. And l- let's talk about why you decided to go into the military uh, let's start from the beginning college of your story. Money. Yeah, college <laughs> money. So why did you decide to go in? I mean, how long was it after 9-11? Did that factor in? And and where did you go from there? No, I joined in 99. At, like Bill Clinton was president. I joined in peacetime army. Um, and really it, it was. It was for the college money uh, because I came from a, a lower middle class family and both my parents had been to college, but they didn't have the money to send me or my brother and we had come from a very long lineage of, of military service. In fact, we've traced our lineage back as far as a general under Napoleon. And, and that wow. that part's in the book. And my grandfather was General Patton's scotch supplier during World War II. <laughs> a very important man. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He got transferred over to Patton's third ID and hijacked a mortuary affairs vehicle and filled it to the brim with Johnny Walker Red. So it, it was just kind of the something that the men in our family did. And, uh, and I was like, well, I had always kind of wanted to, cause I looked up to my uncles and, and to my grandfather. So out of that, uh, it just kind of became a way as like, oh, well, since we do this, this will pay for college and girls love a, a man in uniform. And then September 11th hit and everything changed. So you were in before nine 11 then? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I turned very I, different. I, I turned 18. We have very different. Uh, I turned 18 two days after nine 11 and I was like, no, I, don't. Um, I was, <laughs> I, I was definitely happen. a chicken hawk. Yeah. Uh, so I imagine you went to Afghanistan first. I mean, where, what, what did you do while you were in Afghanistan and you know, how do you talk about it in the book? So, I, I mean, honestly, and we were talking a little bit about this before the the show began, but uh, I, I was actually really afraid when I got the orders. Um, you know, it was 2003, and the reason why I hadn't gone early on was because half of my unit ended up going to the initial invasion in Iraq, in and they started gearing up in 2002 for that. So I was in really us, uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I knew we were going well before we were going. And the reality of the situation for me was that, you know, I was trying to to, to do college in the military, and I, I again, I joined for the college money, and I was I was really afraid. I was really afraid to go overseas. And and part of the problem that you're seeing in a lot of the current war memoirs is is basically you get this what I like to call war porn, where it's like all the heroics and jingoistic nonsense. 
as opposed to the reality and devastation that occurs when you go overseas and have to do things that violate your sense of right and wrong. And that's been the other 99% of us typically, because most of the stuff that's coming out is written by your tier one guys. That's a very small percentage of the, the military, your Navy SEALs and so on and so forth. So uh, when I got to Afghanistan, I, I really tried to kind of hide and get out of going to the border areas. And, and one of the guys who's a main character in my book, his name's Paul Gonzalez. Uh, we call him Gonzo. He just sat me down and he, he said, hey, courage is doing the right thing even when you're afraid and our team needs you. And he said, tomorrow we're all going to get on that bird and we're all going to be afraid together, but we're going to make it through this. And he gave me the strength and courage to actually um, head out to the border and face down some of the crazy environments I've, I've ever been a part of. Is that where the title comes from, where cowards go to die? There's a lot that's in homage there. Um, yes and no, because you, you discover my own cowardice that kind of permeates throughout the book because I didn't want to come off as some war here. I wanted to tell the truth and be honest to my experience and the fear and the terror that you can often feel once you're involved in combat, but also the pure adrenaline rush and the ways that you kind of end up loving war and hating war at the same time. And it, it makes you feel very conflicted. Um, so the, the title really, when I was in Iraq, I actually read the book, uh, I am legend by Richard Matheson. The Will Smith movie is terrible. Doesn't even follow the book. Just ignore that. The book is phenomenal. Um, and it's been, you know, one of those defining genres of book that like Stephen King and other people have used and the last three words of the book are, I am legend. And I was like, that's pretty baller. And I was like, if I was ever to write a book, I would do something similar. And so that's what I did because what I realized, and I had this epiphany later in life when I got home from war, was effectively that um, in life, you will either live as a coward or die as a coward, uh, or you'll have to kill the cowardice inside you to become a fuller, more um, you know, responsible human being. And so for me, uh, readjusting to civilian life and having to go overseas and put that cowardice to death was was a very, very difficult part. And oftentimes when veterans come home, they, they numb out or they bury their emotions and they don't talk about the things that they've been through and they get worse and worse and worse. And they give into the cowardice that lurks in the human heart. And when you do that, you die as a coward. But if you want to live courageously and and grow from you know post traumatic stress to post traumatic growth. You have to kill that inner coward, and so that was the reality that I had to face because I was busy burying my demons in a bottle, um, not dealing with the past pain and trauma, and it 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 became its own you know demon in my life that I had to conquer, and that cowardice had to die. And so in life uh, or war or elsewhere, a coward has to die somewhere. I think as men, and, and probably especially, uh, I'm guessing the cultures that you've been in are far more manly than the cultures I've been in. Uh, the Libertarian Party was not a bastion of warriors. But um, picking up the phone and calling a therapist or admitting that you need help with something is an incredibly terrifying prospect for so many yeah. people. I mean, it does is part of our our national crisis with PTSD and and the struggle from the war i mean how much is that attributed to the culture of the military now and have have you seen a big shift it seems like from the outside that the military has really started to take this seriously that the culture uh and charities are trying to to take this more seriously you hear the often cited 24 veterans committing suicide a day line um 
what are your thoughts on that? I mean, not only the personal decision to ask for help, but also the culture changing to try and get people more help. Um, it's a bit of an oxymoron still within the military. I mean, I, I literally live on the footsteps of Fort Carson here in Colorado Springs, Colorado, and talking with the active duty military, it's, uh, it's a lot of lip service still. It's like, oh yeah, we want, we want to help, but we're not going to really help. And the reason why is because they, they've tried the wrong recruiting efforts recently where it's like, oh, we're a kinder, gentler army. Um, and I'm like, that doesn't help you in combat. That's all that stuff's going to go straight out the window. And the whole goal of the military is to prepare for national defense and war. So if you're if you're trying to do something else, you're you're not effectively training them for what they need to needs to be done. And the the thing that's really struck me is that the way that we're trained is we believe in this warrior ethos: never give up, uh, never leave a man behind, never accept defeat. Uh, and yet, when we leave war and we get out of the military, we're we're okay completely shirking that ethos. And you go to the VA and the VA goes, oh, here's the thing. You were strong enough to serve in the military, but you are too weak to deal with your own life now. So we're going to put you on mood altering drugs for the rest of your life that put you in an alternate reality because you can't face the one that you're dealing with now. That doesn't make sense. And so one of the things that we have to do is we have to realize that instead of just drugging our veterans to death, we have to have them confront the pain and the past and the trauma that they've endured um, with the situations that unfortunately they had to deal with uh, while they were overseas. And, and that's the tough part that a lot of people don't want to hear is that, you know, regardless of what country you live in, uh, you have to submit to their governing rules. There's not a country that you can go to on earth where you can't do you have to not abide by their rules. And so you can be like completely anti-war, not vote for these people, but you still, because you live in this country, you submit to those governing authorities and whether justly or unjustly, those politicians will send men and women to their deaths. And there has to be some sort of collective responsibility for that. And instead we're just kind of going, Oh, I'm going to pass the buck and, and I'm going to, you know, and pass that off. And so many of our veterans feel completely alienated by the very people that they spent the last 20 years fighting for, because there was no draft. You could be the most anti-war person ever and you could have got your number punched, but we stepped up to the plate and allowed the American populace to collectively check out for 20 years while we endured gross injustices overseas in Iraq and Afghanistan. And I think that's such a brilliant point. That's so much of our, our culture today, be it on the face of the globe, but especially see, seemingly here in America, it's so easy to kind of brush aside the things that we don't, the things that are unpleasant. We'll put out mm -hmm. a flag, you know, put out the flag and we'll say the right things on social media. But we, a lot of what we do on this show is try to get people to engage in some of the messier parts because checking out just isn't an option. And as a soldier who served in Afghanistan and Iraq with distinction, you know, so many of us in these longest serving wars just didn't feel it. It wasn't yeah. like World War II with my grandparents where my grandfather served and, uh, you know, everybody was engaged in the war effort. How did that psychologically affect you and how have you seen it affect other veterans? So that, continuing on your previous point, and this ties straight into all of that, you, you have to remember that during World War II, 
the war effort was right in your face. You went to the movies. You're going to see updates about everything. Your, your grandparents were working in factories. Everybody was buying war bonds. There was this collective unity. And so our veterans came home and they felt this sense of, of purpose, mission, and direction. They got on with their lives. They used the VA benefits to get an education and build their homes. And so there, there was that collective responsibility as a whole. And even in Vietnam, you had it, even though it was unpopular, it was always in your face. So out of that, consider what we've done with Iraq and Afghanistan. 20 years of war, and we, we're not even still technically out of Iraq. And you have soldiers do back-to-back-to-back repeated deployments where they almost become institutionalized to a degree. And in the military, we're taught leaders eat last. So your highest ranking officials always eat last and your lowest ranking officials always eat first. And if there's not leftover food, guess who doesn't get to eat? The general. So you have that, that motto and that mindset. And then on top of that, you go overseas and you have people that you've just met who would gladly take a bullet for you and give their life uh, to ensure that you go home. Now you come home to a world where everybody's going, it's pumpkin spice latte season. And believe me, I love pumpkin spice, but they're, but they're checked out. They don't even know what you've endured. And then you enter the corporate world. It, it, right? Is it almost, is it a way to phrase it? Like you're bitter at the, um, the flippancy of it all. Like the, the, the lack of seriousness within what you see coming from a place where it's just literally life or death. Yeah, I wouldn't say it's just bitter. It's just it's you're kind of um, just frustrated and sad that like what has happened carries no weight, carries no value. And and you kind of feel like how like Vietnam veterans did. It's like some of them didn't even ask to go, but they just had to go. And that was the same for some of us because we were on stop loss. But when you return home to an environment where you're taught that honor and that ethos and those values and then you go to a job where you know your boss is is trampling uh, everybody's trampling each other on their way to get up to the top and your boss is trying to make all the extra money and let's you know works his uh, his staff to death so he can make more and you go wait this is not the culture that I came from so you become very alienated and you go where, where's the honor where's the integrity where's that personal courage and you go society doesn't have it anymore and everything that we did overseas just really doesn't matter anymore and so it becomes this almost alienated feeling to where uh, veterans feel they don't fit in anymore and so their their mental health and their suicide right, rates climb whereas in times past there was just kind of more of that collective responsibility and we were all in and uh, instead, we just kind of let politicians do what they do and just get rich and make money off the backs of those of us who fought overseas with their investments in Kellogg, Brown and Root and elsewhere. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> don't get me started. That's the other <laughs> thing this show's about. Um, you, you had a line in the excerpt that I read, post-traumatic stress is different than a soul wound. Instead, there's a term for it, moral injury. And I wondered if you talk, you know, what do you mean by moral injury first? And how did that happen to you in our name? What happened? I think people need to understand, all right, well, this isn't just, oh, you went over and it was like a video game and then you came back and you're just sort of sad. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, we're asking people to do very serious things to themselves and to other people, Um that are tragic for, for all involved. So there's a story I tell in the book. And then I often do this when I'm giving keynote talks is um, 
during the Battle of Ramadi, which was from in 2006, and that was where Chris Kyle was and Jocko Willink and all the like kind of big wigs during that time period. Um, Ramadi accounted for half of all daily attacks that happened in the country of Iraq from 2006 to 2007, and half of all deaths in the United States Marine Corps during that year. And so during one of our engagements, I'm on this rooftop um, during this major operation, and uh, we start taking fire. And across the way, all I know is that we have other troops in contact, and two of my guys are with this other platoon of Marines. And I don't know if it's them. It probably is. But we start taking fire on this rooftop, and I'm, I'm with another soldier, and he hands me his rifle, and he has a high-powered scope on it. And I have a, you know, I'm just running a red dot sight at the time for close quarters combat. And I look down this alleyway near this mosque, and there's this little girl in a yellow dress. She's probably six, seven years old, no older than my daughter is now. And uh, she she's carrying a bunch of munitions. And, uh, and she's walking towards where that other firefight is. And, uh, and I freeze because I know her. Uh, she's this little girl who would come to the combat outpost where we were staged and she would give us flowers. We called her the flower girl. And, uh, she, she gave me this yellow daisy and I was so touched by her gesture that I kept it in my chest rig on my body armor. And so here she is. And now she's technically classified as an enemy combatant. Um, and across the way, come to find out my friends are fighting for their life. She's going to plus up those insurgents and it's a, it's a 20 on two fight. What do you do? Do you shoot her? Do you not shoot her? Do you let your friends die? Uh, what do you do when a teenager rushes you with an AK-47? And so these are the moral quagmires. And just to let your audience know, I didn't shoot her. I just, you know, I handed the, the rifle back and I was like, and he was like, hey, man, I'm really proud of you. Some some guys just don't have that luxury sometimes, unfortunately. And um, but but that that's what moral injury is. It's the emotional shame and psychological damage that occurs to soldiers when we have to do things that violate our sense of right and wrong. Um, killing another human being, uh, watching a friend die in combat, uh, killing a woman or child. And, and out of that, it creates, it's different from post-traumatic stress because that's a, a stressor to a response that is traumatic. Uh, so say for instance, veterans who don't like fireworks uh, because it reminds them of incoming artillery. It's a, it's a stimuli that, that triggers that, that response, that fight or flight response. Whereas moral injury is more of a psychological bruise on the soul of somebody that they have a very tough time getting over because of the things that they did in combat that were morally ambiguous or that their nation asked them to do. And then they come home and they have to live with the consequences of that for the rest of their life. And the reason I know about any of this is um, just to give your audience a little bit of background is uh, I spent 10 years in mental health and then have multiple certifications in crisis response, trauma care and suicide prevention. So I am not just making this up. <laughs> this is something I've extensively studied in and got and got certified in. So, um, so yeah, that's, that's really what it is that many of us come home and face and have to live with for the rest of our lives. You mean, listen, I'm patriotic. I can't not be with the last name Spangle. Um, but you know, stories like yours and, and just being, I mean, nine 11 was the most motivating factor for me to get into politics and the wars started out pro war until I actually started reading that. I was like, I am very anti-war. Um, patriotism just seems to be a moral perversion in so many ways. Um, sure, for me I sitting agree. on the sideline, but I listened to 
to your answers to the last two questions. And I wonder, you know, and these guys who sell books because, hey, I'm going to monetize my experience to, you know, the 65-year-old dude that watches Fox News. I mean, how do you view patriotism? I mean, do you have allegiance to America? Do you have uh, a different view on it as as a result of, you know, uh, taking moral injury for your country? Uh, yes, uh, I would consider myself extremely patriotic because I love my country. I hate the division that I see in it. I, I think that's the toughest part, having been a soldier, is the fact that we are taught to to love our country and the people in it, even if they despise us. Uh, I had to lead a 21-gun salute while Westboro Baptist Church protested my friend's funeral. But I understood that if they don't have that freedom, nobody has that freedom. And and even though I disagree with them, eminently disagree with them, I want people to have the freedom of expression, the freedom to say things that even I think are ridiculous or even stupid. Um, and so as Americans, we I really believe that we were founded on the principles of, of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness in, in regard to that. Now, granted, there have been systems of injustice that have permeated throughout our entire, um, you know, <laughs> republic uh, repeatedly, and, and we have to address those. But I, I've always been proud of who I am and um, and of the country. I, you know, I was a kid in the, the 80s growing up in, during the Cold War when, you know, Rocky Balboa went over and beat the trash out of Ivan Drago on Christmas Eve, you know? Um, so there, there's fun stuff like that, but I, you, there has to be some collective buy-in. You, you, you know, being an American is more than just being, I would say, being born in the country that you're in. It, it's taking that, um, that, that nationalistic identity and not making it supreme, but also respecting the views and difference of opinions that other people in that country have to where you create more of a melting pot to where people are able to disagree and still be friends. And that's, that's what you see in the military. You go into the barracks anytime and you're going to see a cowboy listening to with his buddy who's showing him gangster rap. Well, some other dudes cooking like, you know, indigenous Indian food. And and everybody's getting a lot. Yeah, my friend Robert Vane says that the military is the most. It, it proves that multiculturalism works. It's true. It's true. It's the most but, diverse organization on the planet. Right. And but here's the reason why we go. We all go through the ringer together, and it builds that adversity creates connection for us. And anymore, like Americans are are used to being coddled. And, and it's, that's the travesty. If you can't ha- face adversity, you fall apart and adversity. You talk to anybody, when is the moment that you grew the most? It's always out of your hardships. And yet we think there's no reason for suffering anymore. And we don't have a language to, to quantify that. And so we just check out. Yeah. I think that's a huge part of our problem now is that that version of patriotism that you and I grew up with, that we felt comfortable with, that we felt we were protecting, that we, you know, that the, the myths that we all kind of grew up with—they're not myths. I mean, I'm an. Yeah, they're I, kind I, of myths. I mean, some of it is. <laughs> some I mean, of it. But you, uh, th- those were the ties that bind, right? The yep. they're the shared mission, and you know, the myths of like the cherry tree with Washington are myths, but the. founding a government on, you know, natural rights. That's not a myth. All right. So anyways, but, you know, I I wonder, you know, when you hear, uh, well, thank you for fighting for our freedom. (laughs) Like, I've I've talked to a lot of military guys who have just said, like, it doesn't, I wasn't fighting for anybody's freedom. 
Mm-hmm. Do, do you identify with that? I mean, do you look back and kind of go, that was kind of a BS line from the Bush administration, or do you just have a view that I don't, where I just have a cynical sideline view and you're like, no, bitch, I was fighting for your freedom. <laughs> It's a it's a both end for me, honestly. Um, when people you know tell me, "Hey, thanks for your service. I really appreciate it." Um, my buddy that I got injured with, you know, he he was. A, I used to be like, "Oh man, they don't they don't even know." You know, forget them. And he's like, "Why are you going to be one of those salty vets? Like, why can't you just say thank you for your support? Like, they're they're literally thanking you. What are you going to be bitter about it? You you know." And he he called me some choice words, and I was like, "Man, he's right." And so it means a lot to me. One of the the biggest things that I remember, one of the things that I've been touched by the most was um, I was in the Dallas airport uh, about to go back over to Iraq. I had taken my two weeks leave and I'm there with all my buddies and we're about to go back to the meat grinder. We're, we don't know if we're going to make it. And um, we're talking and laughing and carrying on and, you know, having some beers and, and uh, we're on like a Chili's or Applebee's. I don't know. And somebody buys our entire meal. And we don't know who it is. And I, I, it touched me so deep. I'm still talking about it. Right. And it was just kind of, and they were like, Hey, don't worry about it. You don't need to say thank you. They just want to say thank you. And I was like, dude. And, and here's later in life, you know, my grandfather, when we would go and watch fireworks in Colorado at his country club and stuff, he'd always make a stand, put our hand over our heart for your, you know, and, uh, he, he would remind us, you know, Hey, freedom isn't free. And I was, you know, I was bought into that, that weird jingoistic version where I was like, yeah, freedom isn't free. But the thing that I, I realized later in life is freedom always requires blood. It, it, like you can't have like freedom without kind of like that, that going through that. And the freedom that we provided this generation of people was that you guys didn't have to endure what we did. You didn't have to watch it. And you, there was there wasn't a draft. None. Of, you you got to protest. You got to do whatever you want. You got to enjoy your life. You got to enjoy your freedoms here in America. Well, the rest of us ha- were forced and were put on stop loss and couldn't even get out of the military. My best friend died because he was on stop loss because he couldn't get out and he had plans to switch over to the Navy and instead, you know, he's six feet under now. So, yeah, I I think that it's a little bit of both end. I think it's, it's a little, you know, kind of like cheesy patriotic in some ways that we do, but I'm also very thankful for the people that say it now, because I, I don't want to want to be the, one of those ungrateful vets. And yeah, uh, I think, and, I think that it's kind of profound. Like the, the freedom to be comfortable is what most of us got. Yes. And the that's freedom sort to of, be comfortable. that is sort of the, um, the freedom that so many people on, you know, I'm not, I don't want to besmirch anybody in, in your presence, but so many people are, when it, when they think about freedom, it's about themselves and their comfort. Um, mm-hmm. So, you know, I was looking at your Amazon page uh, because I'm not, did you read the audiobook? I did. I listened to it. Yeah. I, okay. I wanted to, I had to hear the voice actor and okay. I loved him. He did great. All right. Cause I'm going to buy not only the book, but the audible version. Cause I, I love to not only, I love to read and listen at the same time, but I noticed that you wrote another book called Rewrite, The Journey from Self-Harm to Healing. Mm-hmm. Uh, I want to—I want you to talk about when you came back. I mean, did you have a period where you just weren't doing well and then got a hold of yourself? I mean, did you... Wh- what was it like when you came back? First, let me switch up. I am do this every interview. I'm like, I'm going to ask this question. No, 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 no. Let's start here. 
what what was the difference between Afghanistan and Iraq? Because Afghanistan was the noble war, right? Everybody was for it except for a few Congress people. And then Iraq was the contentious war. Um, you know, did you as soldiers feel that? How did that affect you there? And what were the differences between the two arenas? You know, I think Afghanistan started off as the noble war and we accomplished what we set out to do within six months was the problem. And then we had no idea what to do, no (laughs) idea how to stabilize it, no idea how to kind of cut the head off Al Qaeda because it worked like uh, a hydra, you know, and you cut off one and three more pop up. And that's what we had. You know, you had Al Qaeda in the Maghreb, uh, ISIL, you know, the Islamic State of the uh, Levant, and it, it just constantly shifting and evolving. And, you know, the the, I think it was uh, the Pen- was the Afghanistan papers really kind of reported that we just we didn't have a clear goal or objective. So it started out great, and then it just kind of descended into madness. And we tried to really just sell it like slapping lipstick on a pig. It's like, oh, well, we're going to take out the poppy fields and the Silk Road. That was a big push while I was there from 03 to 04. And I was like, okay, th- why? Like, shouldn't we be focusing on like reconstruction efforts and schools and stuff for, you know, little girls? And, and then uh, it became like, oh, well, there's all these minerals and commodities and lithiums in the mountains of Afghanistan and we can get rich, you know? And, and it just constantly, the narrative constantly changed because we, we did, we accomplished what we set out to do initially. And then we just didn't know what to do after that. And then Iraq kind of became this, um, I would say almost kind of like a, a linchpin move, like a, a pincher move, because w- we wanted to destabilize the Middle East. And my background's also in geopolitical intelligence. Um, and we had Iran right there um, and between Afghanistan and Iraq. And we didn't want our enemies coming over onto foreign soil. So the big objective for foreign policy, they were like, well, we can't just say, hey, this is about foreign policy and making sure that the Arabs fight each other over uh, silly theological differences between you know, Shia and Sunni. So we just totally destabilized that region while we went in and it, you know, it, it ultimately led to the Arab Spring. We had all of our enemies fighting each other. And, uh, and out of that, we accomplished you know, a very perverse, sadly, um, foreign policy goal and kept America from any future attacks for, from, from that period. And the, the reality of the situation was, you know, there weren't WMDs, there were chemical weapons, we sold them all to Syria, and they were in Syria. But overall, it was just, it was kind of a narrative that, that we all bought into where, you know, at first we were there. And literally, I'm there in 2006. And my team sergeant, uh, and this this is also in the boat, or not team sergeant, uh, one of my other sergeants, who I was a team sergeant at the time, he just looks at me and he goes, what the hell are we doing here, man? And I didn't have an answer for him. Because I was like, ah, uh, helping Iraqi, I don't know, we're blowing up this city. That's what we're doing, you know? And and so the differences between the two was like, if you're looking for specifics, is Afghanistan kind of stopped like when Alexander the Great like marched through there. Very tribal. Uh, the area that I was in was very mountainous. There's no nationalistic Afghan identity. Um, and so you know, we were fighting in Creek beds called wadis where, you know, they would have the high grounds. And so, uh, they would create these complex attacks and rain in, uh, artillery and, and, you know, sniper fire and, and different things. And then Iraq, as far as environment was like 
it looked like it had stopped in the 1970s because of Saddam Hussein. And you're going house to house and it's like urban combat and you're not like hiding behind trees or rocks or, or big pillars. Instead, you're like kicking in doors and, and you know, there, there's much more collateral damage that way as far as everything. So there, there was a distinct difference between the two. And then Iraq, we also created the insurgency ourselves by firing the Iraqi army. So lots of differences between the two. How did you feel about how we left Afghanistan? Oh, I hated it. It, like literally is the dumbest way to we're, we're the greatest superpower on on earth we control the seas that's a given fact like nobody else controls the seas and we created globalization because of the stability of the seas and the fact that we you know we had nafta and and everything else and we're like hey after world war ii come join us we'll provide the stabilization we'll create trade and commodity all that's over now and if you want to read a great book on that i recommend my friend uh peter zion uh, his book, uh, The End of the World is Just the Beginning. He goes into history and detail, demography and geography about that. But uh, we we could have literally told the Taliban, hey, go pound sand. We'll get out of here when we want to. We, we're going to do things on our own timeline. Otherwise, you guys are all going to die because we have the technology to do that. And instead, we left like a dog with its tail between its legs. And it killed 13 service members. And then we had a retaliatory airstrike that only killed Afghan civilians. That is an international embarrassment, the way that we handled things. And then on top of that, the Afghan military just rolled over and let the Taliban go right go right through them. So for a lot of us, um, the similarities between the fall of Saigon and the fall of Kabul were extremely similar and extremely devastating. So let's talk when you come back. Um, and I will once again mention I'm talking to Ben Sle- Benjamin Sledge. That's how you'd look it up if you're going to buy his book on Amazon, Where Cowards Go to Die. And he's also the author of Rewrite, The Journey from Self-Harm to Healing. Um, talk about your process when you come back. You've mentioned addiction a couple times. What was it like when you came back? You've mentioned there was not not just that disjointed, but that people were hostile. And how did you deal with your own personal struggles? So going back to the moral injury piece, you know, I didn't want to be one of those guys that didn't talk about their experience. So when I got home from Afghanistan, uh, a lot of first responders, EMT doctors, they will develop, you know, gallows humor. Um, the same is true for for us. And so there's this moment in the book that I write about called Dog Strike. And and if you're you're hearing that and you're like, what? And we're basically killing dogs. Um, and so you guys are picturing you know, fluffy in your head and thinking, my God, you're a monster. And I would begin to tell these stories and I I would, I would get the same looks. Um, The body language would shift. And we pick up on that stuff because we're used to interrogating people. I'm I'm not offended. I don't like dogs. It's fine. (laughs) Just Um, But, and there's a whole story. I'm I'm not going to tell you why or how or what happened or any of that because I want you guys to buy the books. You're going to be like, what did he do? (laughs) Uh, But when you begin telling those stories, people get uncomfortable. They're not used to that level of intensity or violence. Uh, And so out of that, I I begin to, the the message that was communicated to me was you're a monster. (laughs) And so I just shut down and I buried everything that I did. I didn't talk about it. And it just, it ate at me from the inside. And so eventually, you know, I, I medicate that with alcohol. And then when I had gotten injured, you know, they'd given me prescriptions to opioids. And this was way before the opioid addiction um, really kind of made the national headlines. So I was able to get like a lot of it. When that ruse kind of finally ended, I was picking up from just random people that I knew who were selling it. And, um, and 
it led to just some very dark places to where one night I, I kick in my girlfriend's door and I'm threatening everybody there. They're, they're about to call the police. And, and luckily my uh, roommate comes and just, and I'm so intoxicated at this point, you know, I, I can't really fight anybody. Um, but he, he just wraps me in a bear hug from behind and just pulls me to the ground and just yells like, what the F is wrong with and, you, And you're man? not a little guy. You stood up to ch- to close your blinds. And I was like, good grief. <laughs> <laughs> like what? Six foot two and full of muscle. So that's. No, that's a- I'm not, I'm not quite six foot, but yeah, I, I, I mean, I've just, I like to train still, you know, <laughs> and that's my thing. I don't know. I just, I, I like exercise and, and staying healthy, but anyway, neither here nor there. So he, and I just, you know, I start crying at that point and I'm just like, nothing fits in my life anymore. Uh, I don't know how to put the pieces back. And he, he's like, Hey man, like, let's go home. And so he takes me home and the next morning I wake up and my parents are there. All my roommates are in the living room. I'm like, Oh no, I have colossally messed up. And, um, <laughs> oh, I got an intervention. Dang. Yeah. So I get, I get an intervention and I start going to counseling and, uh, and I start working with the counselor and it was re- really, really good. Um, it's just, I, I wasn't as honest with her as I felt because, um, I, there, there was just these moments that I didn't feel that I could reveal to her because of her own body language and, and things that went on, but she really helped me process that. But the weirdest thing happened. I, I found myself missing war. And, you know, this is still while we're in Iraq, Afghanistan, and I missed it because of the profound sense of mission, purpose, and direction and the camaraderie that I felt. And so my old team sergeant from Afghanistan, he pins me up against the wall and he goes, hey, man, you're going to Iraq. And I'm like, no way, not me. But then there's like this question that every parent asks their kids. They're like, if all your friends were jumping off a bridge, would you do it? And you're like, no, of course not, mom. But when all your veteran buddies are doing it, you're totally in. So yeah, that I, was a that was a thing. There was like a whole. <laughs> I remember that kind of t- in the Obama towards you know the Obama administration. A lot of guys started going back, and that so now that makes total sense. Is that you feel totally alienated and disconnected, and you're looking for purpose again? And where yep. am I going to find my people? I'm going to go back and be a part of this, and I don't really care if I live or die, to be honest, because my life sucks here. I mean, th- is that yeah, sort of a good summation of it? it? That's it. And you had an entire generation of, of veterans become institutionalized. You look at the studies that show like convicted felons who get out of jail, they become institutionalized by it. So they commit felonies so that they can go back in jail because it's what they know. And so we just, we started going overseas. And so I was like, all right, uh, you know, and, and I, so I volunteered for a deployment, lied to my wife at the time about it was like, Hey, I got called up again, not telling her that I was the one who was like, yeah. I have to go. Um, and that, you know, that eventually led to just us in a, a divorce and I was always gone anyways. And and now I'm remarried, been remarried for 11 years, have two great kids. But anyway, I come home from Iraq and she leaves uh, three months prior to me coming home, leaves me while I'm over there and I'm just devastated. And so I go and I live on my best friend from college's couch in Austin, Texas. And he's like, Hey, let's go down to Sixth Street and we're going to party and you can meet some new girls. And I just get worse. You know, I'm more violent. I'm trying to pick fights with bouncers, you know, and I, and like you said, I'm this big dude. So I'm, and I'm scary now at this point because I don't, I don't fear anything. I don't fear death. I'm like, these people can kill me. I don't care. I don't care about my life. And so, you know, I come to the, this moment one night where I'm, I'm literally contemplating suicide. I'm like, my wife's left. I don't have a job. I don't have, I have one friend. Um, what, what am I supposed to do with my life? 
And I have this epiphany that I'm like, man, I'm still alive. Bullet bombs haven't killed me. Um, I'm more grizzled and well adapted to adjust to adverse environments. And if I kill myself, then the insurgency wins, Al Qaeda wins, and Taliban wins. They they're getting the win that they've always wanted, and that's what they're getting from veterans right now. They're getting that W. And so I kind of resolved to like, okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna continue to live, but my mental health still deteriorated. And eventually, uh, my my buddy, I wake up super hungover and drunk on his couch. He did, and he's cooking eggs, and it's like making me nauseous. <laughs> and uh, he goes, "Hey man, can I take you to church?" And I'm like, "What?" Why? Like, and the funny part was, is he was an atheist, and really, uh, yeah. No, and I was like, that's agnostic. Jesus intervention. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, I, and I talk about my upbringing. I, I grew up in the buckle of the Bible Belt in Oklahoma, and and the, just some kind of weird versions of like nationalistic prosperity Christianity that that were just wacky. And so I, I left when I was like seventeen. I was like, this is all a sham. But I end up going to this church, and I meet these two guys who really begin to pour into me and aren't afraid of my trauma and my past. Um, and they're Christians and, uh, they just help me explore questions of meaning and purpose, um, philosophical ramifications, existential ramifications, because I, I was convinced that, you know, if we're evolutionary blips in the grand scheme of life, then why does anything that we do matter? If the entropic heat death of the universe is going to happen in 3.5 billion years, then then why does like love, why does rape, why does cheating on your spouse or any of that stuff matter? Like why does what I do in war matter? If I, if I kill a woman or a child, why does any of that matter? If love is especially just a chemical reaction in my brain. And so I was having this major existential crisis and they just really helped me find, you know, a higher power and, and then, explore the spiritual ramifications of war too. And that's the thing that a lot of people miss. Um, and author Carl Marlantis, who wrote what it's like to go to war and Matterhorn really, um, really drives this home. But uh, in my own book, I write about how when you are a soldier, you have the power to protect life or take it away. And on some levels, that's like playing God. And so most of us think that we know what's going to happen when we die, myself included, you know, my own faith beliefs. I, I think I know, but there is no formative consensus across the board as far as like what we believe as far as human beings. Is it the great nothingness? Is it reincarnation? Is it heaven? You know, which one is it? And so we call this space after death, the great unknown. So when you point an M4 carbine rifle at a man and you pull the trigger and you send them to the great unknown, there's something deeply and inherently spiritual about that. And they help me explore that, those questions. And so out of that, between counseling and EMDR therapy and exploring those questions, uh, I bounced back and I, I took my biggest pain and it became my biggest point of growth. That's fantastic. I mean, it, it's, your story is great. Uh, I bought the book while while you were talking uh, so I, <laughs> yes, thank you yeah, so i have won you over <laughs> yes no i i just think uh your story is incredible and i could talk to you for another hour and i hope to you know at some point in the future i you have an open invitation back um, i'd love to come back anytime yeah. and and you know if you're your fans ever want a q a or ask questions like i love reading uh, geopolitics, philosophy. I, I write about philosophy in the book, uh, politics, all of it. So I, boy, I'm you, you, uh, if you ever want to start a podcast, let me know. <laughs> you, you belong here on the We Are Libertarians network like you wouldn't believe. Um, so 
I'm going to invite you back at some point when your schedule allows, because I want to talk deeper about the mental health stuff, because I think it's not just about veterans. It's it's also uh, everybody goes through it at some point in their life. We've talked a Absolutely. lot about it here on the program. I mean, my life uh, has taken a 182, um, a, a 182, not a 180, just just a little bit off course. Um, but I I. I want to get more deeper into that and we just don't have the time to finish that up today. But, uh, I thank you for your time. I want to give you some shameless self promotion. If you, if you write, if you have a blog, you're on social media, you know, obviously where can people buy the book? This is the floor is yours. Tell people where they can follow you. So, uh, if you want to buy the book, it's available at all major retailers. So you can Amazon, Barnes and Noble. If you like to listen, it's on Audible, you know, IndieBound, Kobo, wherever, wherever books are sold, you can pick it up. If you want to know more about me, you can literally Google Ben Sledge or you can Google Benjamin Sledge. Everything that pops up is me. I write specifically on medium. I just wrote about how I was the metal kid growing up and, uh, and everybody hated me, even though they love Eddie Munson now from Stranger Things. Uh, so that's that's my latest article. But uh, and that that just got featured by Medium. Um, I write for different publications as far as the military. Um, I'm doing some partnerships with Veteran TV right now. But literally, just Google me. You'll find me on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, all your major uh, social platforms, and and that's where you can find me. All right, Ben Sledge. Thank you so much for joining me here on the program. Uh, it was an honor to be here. Thank you so much for having me, Chris. And thank you all for listening. If you got something out of this, if you learned something, then the best way you can honor Ben and the Chris Spangle Show is by sharing it with your friends and recommending it. That is how books are sold. That's how podcasts are grown. It's how it all works now is the word of mouth. And so we uh, would ask you to share if you got something out of it. So thanks for listening. We really do appreciate your time. Thank you again to Ben for being here and check out his book, Where Cowards Go to Die. We will see you again very soon. This podcast was produced and edited by Chris Spangle and Leaders and Legends, LLC. If you're interested in starting a podcast or taking yours to the next level, please contact us at leadersandlegends.net.